Welcome to Thoughtfully Mindless. My guest in this episode is Germinal G. Van. Germinal is an economist and an award-winning author. He's the winner of the 2021 Best Indie Book Award in Socioeconomic History, a finalist of the 2022 National Indie Excellence Award in U.S. History, and he's the founder and editor-in-chief of GGV Publishing Company, LLC. We have a great conversation around economics, politics, and the relationship between those two. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. And with that, let's welcome Germinal. All right, Germinal, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, thanks. Thanks, Arthi. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So to get started, you're in Chicago, right? How long have you been in Chicago? So I have been in Chicago. In fact, I live in Oak Park, which is like 15 minutes away from Chicago, the actual city. I've been there since 2018. Okay. Uh, yeah, so it's been close to six years. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Close to six years. So Chicago has a reputation. Uh, it gets a lot of bad publicity for like crime and things like that. I figured since you actually live around the area, maybe you can give a in-person analysis. Is it as bad as some people say? I mean, it has the nickname of uh, Chirac, or it used to at some point. Um, is it as bad and dangerous, or is it just certain parts that are dangerous? Or What's your analysis? Yeah, so, um, you know, every city has its good and its bad part. So um, I don't think Chicago is necessarily that different. Uh it's, I think the reason why Chicago may have like a very bad reputation, it's because of the intensity of the crimes. So, of course, if you go to Southside, that's where the rough neighborhoods are. Yeah. But on the North Side, on the other hand, uh, in Uptown, it's, it's pretty fine. Like, my wife and I, we go there, we, we spend time there, and it's, it's, it's a good area to go. So, um, it's it's I would say it's mostly the south the south part of the city that is dangerous, yeah. and the crime there is just intense. That's why um, Chicago gained a reputation for being like a notorious city in terms of crime. I used to live in D.C. before moving to Chicago, and back then there was like a part of D.C. called um, so the, there was Anacostia and. Uh, Capitol Heights and all these uh, areas in DC that were pretty much rough neighborhoods too. And, you know, these were the parts that you don't want to go. And then you have like the Northwest part of DC, which was pretty um, good to, to be, to be around. It was pretty much safe, but of course crime happened there, but it was very low. Like the, the rates were extremely low and it's the same in Chicago too. So it really depends where you are and at a certain time as well. Okay. Yeah, it seems like that's the case with a lot of areas that have big, bad crime. Yeah. Like Chicago is a massive city, millions of people there, right? And yep. uh, I've, I've done a bit of traveling around the U.S. and most major cities are like that, where there's there's a couple blocks or a area where crime is just worse. You know, so yeah. that, that makes sense that you can. So it. It's manageable. Like you can, mm -hmm. you know where not to go. You know how to avoid it. It's not like you're walking anywhere in Chicago and you're at risk all the time. So, yeah. all right. That's really cool to hear. I have some family near Chicago, so they, they enjoy it. And 
I've always kind of wondered, like, how bad is it really? Because, you know, you can turn on conservative media and they're going to say it's really bad. And then you'll turn on left-wing media. They will just not mention it at all. So, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but what are the main issues facing Chicago? Because there is, it does have its uh, fair share of corruption and its economic problems. And you're, you're an economist, you know a lot about economics. So what are the main issues facing Chicago specifically? Well, uh, one of the main things is basically um, access to opportunities. But the question is, how do you grant access to opportunities? Do you create permissive laws or do you put more regulations? We know that, and this is not just in Chicago, but anywhere on earth, right? There, When you implement permissive laws, meaning that government does less and less, basically they implement laws that enhance individual liberty. People have the right to do X, Y, Z. We know that it increases efficiency and increases productivity because people have the freedom to decide how they want to allocate their resources. But when you put more rules, more regulations, by essence, those rules are restrictive and punitive. If you look at legislation, it's always about the things you're not supposed to do. It's mm. preventing. So that's so. This is um, something to really um, understand between rules and regulation. Rules refer to things that we're allowed to do. Regulations and legislation are man-made. It's about things you're not supposed to do, and the things that you're not supposed to do restrict your ability to exert your potential and produce something of value. So in order to create access to opportunity, well, you need to create access and access means to permit, to allow people. But if you, if government keeps implementing regulations in order to create access, it doesn't really, it doesn't really create access because it prevents those who have the means to actually add value to do so. So what government does is transferring um, that quote-unquote access to opportunities is deferring it to those who don't have the means. Therefore, what it does is that it leads to um, suboptimal outcomes. By suboptimal outcomes, I mean that outcomes that are basically underneath what what it should be. So that's where the issue is. Interesting. So there, it's a matter of not giving the opportunities where the opportunities would be most beneficial for the economy, essentially. Yeah. So if I can put it this way, um, they measure opportunity by outcome. And I think this is like a, yeah, it's not a, a good way to determine the outcome of something because measuring opportunity by outcome simply means that based on what the outcome is, or you know that it will be, you discriminate within opportunities, right? You, you mm -hmm. try to select which opportunities you believe fit best. But when you measure outcome by the opportunity, it means that since you don't know what the outcome will be, you go with the flow. You go with whatever opportunity that is available to you and you maximize that opportunity available to you. So it's like using, uh, it's like maximizing output with the least resources available to you. And I think people who have that mentality produce a lot. And I'm, one of those people where like I can have like very 
restrain resources and still find a way to create output out of those limited resources I have. So as far as the quality of outcome that's being pushed, is it, are we talking like race outcome, gender outcome, social class outcome? What is it that's being, what is the outcome that they're trying to create equality regarding? It's equality of outcome. And while race is always the the issue that is brought up, things were never about race. It's always about social class. Okay. And the reason why is because, you know, in a capitalist society, the major struggle is not regarding your skin color. It's about your it's about your social class. Those who have the financial power rule over those who don't have that social Darwinism. That's how it is. And most people, the way they want to do is that it's unfair. Well, sure, it is. It might be unfair, but we live in a society where you have the ability to move from one social class to another. That's the beauty of American society. That's the beauty of capitalism. It's the social mobility is fluid, right? If you make enough income, you can move from middle class to upper class, and you can move from upper class to the very wealthy. It depends on, you know. Yeah. But uh, so it's always about social class. And race is just like used as a scapegoat to justify why we should do things a certain way. But the, but the ultimate goal has always been equality of outcome. But the problem with equality of outcome is that you're punishing those who have abilities, who have certain skills. You're punishing them simply for having them. Because by trying to level up the playing field for everyone at the same time, it doesn't guarantee that they will still generate the same outcome. That's the issue. And for example, let's say uh, you measure, I don't know, like, let's say like you're six feet, you're like six feet tall, right? Or maybe like you're seven feet tall. So that means that you're fit to play basketball. Yeah. On top of playing basketball, basketball has rules, right? The, the, the field has rules. And you're maybe because of, or because you're tall, so you may be good at three points. If we get rid of those three points, you now you're at a disadvantage, right? Because we yeah. get rid of that rule of the three points. So, and people who get rid of that rule of the three points say that, oh, no, we have to give a chance to shorter, um, to, to shorter players to, you know, to make their marks. But you know what I mean? So getting rid of that rule will not make the other better. Yeah, It's like, if, if you're not, basically based on who you are and what you have, it's important to find a field where you know that you can be good at. That's what it is. I, for example, cannot play basketball. <laughs> I don't have the height. I don't have the physical strength for it. So I'm not going to go and play basketball because I suck at it. I will say, hey, like you guys need to, you guys need to impose quotas. You have to take people like me, and you cannot just take all tall players, yeah. and so on and so forth, right? So. It's that's what equality of outcome is about. It's about trying to level up the field by preventing those who have the skills and abilities to be good at something to exert that those skills and abilities. But the beauty of life is that we're we're different. 
And, and that's what makes us individuals, right? We're all human beings. That's the, that's the very basic. We're all human beings, whether you're black, white, Asian, Arab, whatever your skin color, we're all human beings by nature. Then we're individuals because we have a specific personality. We have specific skills. We have specific flaws that, that is within us, that makes us who we are, that makes us unique. Yeah. And that's the beauty. And it's when we bring all of that together, where we try to coexist and bringing our strength and flaws together, that we create something more valuable. And I think that's, that's what has always made the United States a special place, a melting pot, because we all come from somewhere. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. I came from, I, I'm from, I'm originally from Ivory Coast. You can pick from my voice and my accent that I speak French, like French is my first language. And I always uh, try to be, to be into things that I know. For example, right, I know that I am, I'm good at intellectual stuff. So what I do, I commercialize my intellect by writing books, by owning a publishing company where I can publish my own work and the work of others by writing uh, articles, sharing my knowledge with people. Knowledge is the only commodity that uh, gains value when it is spread around. Because the more you share with people, the better you know people know and they can implement that. And I even have always argued that the, the actual reason of the wealth gap is information. But we'll come to that in a second. It's how people use information. But yeah, equality of outcome is what people are trying to, to implement. And one way to implement equality of outcome, not even one way, the main way to implement equality of outcome is to promote democracy. But democracy is a horrible system. And people confuse democracy with uh, a system of democratic elements, right? The United States has is a country, is a government that has democratic elements in its political system. But it doesn't mean that it's a democracy. Because democracy, by essence, is the rule of the majority. And the rule of the majority is equality. But when you promote democracy, you subvert individual liberty. You prevent people from, you know, doing their best and creating value. Yeah, a couple things there. Uh, first, I've I had to come to the re- same realization as you with basketball. I grew up uh, watching Michael Jordan because I was <laughs> born outside of Chicago, and uh, at some point, I wanted to be like him. And uh, at some point, I had to come to the face the facts <laughs> that I uh, I was lacking in the height department, in the athleticism department. I'm athletic, but nowhere near anything as le- athletic as him. Um, I agree with you that knowledge has caused a lot of the separation of, uh, and I think it's just factually true, right? Like what have been the major threats to the power structures over, over the years? Like the printing press was a major threat to the power structures in place. The internet was also a major threat to the power structures in place because both of them have the potential to spread information that was not even possible to that same level before that. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Especially with the internet. You know, 
before the internet, it was very, it was more difficult to start a business, for example, because when you want to start yeah. a business, you need not just to fight for the LLC or the corporation, but you need to get like an actual local, like, you know, a place, a physical address where you're going to go to work and pay the rent and everything. So you technically needed couple thousand dollars to kick off. Right. But with the internet today, you and I were sitting, I'm sure you're doing your podcast, which is your business from your room. And mm-hmm. you probably making a living off that. That's yeah. the beauty of the internet because you were able to capitalize on the information available to you. And I said uh, previously that information is actually the fundamental uh, factor of the wealth gap. Those who are wealthy, are wealthy because they capitalize on the information available to them. Let me give you one example, Jeff Bezos. We can say what we want about Jeff Bezos, right? Sometimes we can criticize his business practices. But the reason why Jeff Bezos became wealthy was because when he worked at DE Shaw, one of the most sophisticated hedge funds in the world, he was actually, first of all, doing well for himself. He was like 30 or 31. He was vice president. Uh, of uh, of the trading department, something like that. And he stumbled on the information that he can generate returns of 2,300% with the internet. Mm. That is the information he got. He had two choices. He can be like, he can see the information and be like, oh, okay, well, well, that's cool. And move on with his day. The second, the, the, the second choice was, okay, how can I actually do that? How can I make it happen? And we all know what choice he made between those two. Yeah, History spoke for, him for itself. It's the same. I, for example, I can give my own example. How did I start my publishing company? At first, I knew that I, I was good at writing. I always wrote. In fact, I started writing books like when I was like 16 or 17, but I never finished them. Never finished them. And then one day, and my mom is someone she hates when people start things and don't go through it, like you don't yeah. finish the, the whole thing. So I said, I'm going to commit to it. I'm, I'm going to do it. So I finally published my first book in 2018. But that's when I discovered that Amazon offers services of self-publishing. Hmm. So I saw that. I'm like, okay, here Jeff Bezos gives me a chance to publish my own work before the only way was to go through a, a through a, a publisher. But of course, don't get me wrong. Self-publishing has its own drawbacks too. Like sure. You can publish your own work in terms of income, whatever book sold, it goes straight to you. But in terms of exposure, you're more limited, yeah. especially if you have big aspirations. Like if you one day want to become like a New York times bestseller or, if you want to win awards, maybe it's go, it's better to go with a publisher. So, and I also published with publishers before. So I'm like a full, complete author. Like I experienced both aspects, self-publishing and with, with, with a publisher. And then I was like, okay, what these publishers do is not rocket science. I can do the same. Yeah. So I say, you know what? I had 200 bucks on me. I said, I'm going to start my publishing company with that, with just $200. I filed for the LLC and everything, went to the bank and put $200 in it. That's how I worked on the website. And then I said, since I 
kind of built a brand because I published like two dozen books before starting my publishing company. I'm going to offer my service to people to help them also becoming authors because the publishing industry is a pretty restrictive in industry. The most established um, companies don't allow authors to come in. So I say like, I want to democratize that. I want to grant that access because there are many people who actually produce good work, but they don't have the chance. We even can we can even take the the the, the case of J.K. Rowling. She got rejected thirteen times yeah. before someone finally say, you know what, this has value. Maybe we should give her a shot. The rest is history, as we know. So that's what I wanted to do. I, I, I capitalize on the information that now that we live in the age of the internet, I can literally start my publishing company from home. I don't have to go rent a place and pay rent and all these costs, uh, startup costs. I cut all of that. All I have to do is to pay for the website, to, to run the website, and, pre and pretty much that's it, and make the, the books print on demand using Amazon and, and uh, Lulu and, you know, these uh, soft, these self-publishing softwares and work with that. And then, yeah, so, so that's how I, I, that's how, that's how it happened. So it's all about how you use the information available to you because it's easy to blame the system. I agree the system is not perfect, but what do you do with, the information given to you. There are a lot of people, they have information, they don't use it. And then they complain that they're paying more taxes than average. Life isn't fair to them. They're in debt and so on and so forth. Yeah. Right. So uh, it's, as I said, the, the, the wealth gap is not a matter of race because if it was a matter of race, no minority on this, on this, in this country will be a millionaire, let alone a billionaire. We have black billionaires. We have Asian billionaires, Asian millionaires. So it's not about race. It's about how you use the information given to you. I wonder how cool would it be to hear the thoughts of one of those uh, publishers that rejected J.K. Rowling's. Like, right. <laughs> oh, what a what a series of books to pass up on. Um, yeah, I, I agree with everything you're saying. Um, as far as democracy, you mentioned democracy uh, being a bad system earlier. Can you dive into that a little bit? And I've, I've tried to talk to people about this, and a lot of people don't seem to understand what democracy actually is. Like, and tell me if I'm wrong. So in, in, in an actual democracy, we have a representative, uh, a republic. We have a constitutional republic in the United States, and we have democratic elements to it. But in a true democracy, every person would be voting on every single issue, correct? Which, first of all, who would have the time for that? We just don't have the time as individuals to run our own lives and participate in the political system to that extent. But specifically, I want to touch on why it's a bad system. So I know one of the arguments for it being a bad system are minority political minorities get shut out so if you have a group that doesn't go along with the masses then their voice just gets completely shut out so a true democracy would have really bad protections for 
minority voters. And I'm not talking about race here. I'm talking about minority political positions, you know? Yeah. Yeah. In terms of numbers. Yeah. Yeah. So can you dive into that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. So it, it's a, as I said, it's a bad system because it prevents, it shuts, it shuts out the minority. But even let me give you a practical example. When you look at, for example, uh, black in, blacks in America, I wrote several books on uh, black America. Black, so when you look at black people in America, specifically after the abolition of slavery, um, they had at the, at the national level, they had constitutional rights. Right, uh, the government, the, some staff care was they were supposed to be protected under the constitution. But when you look at at the state level, especially in the Bible Belt, all the state down there, black people were completely were completely shut out. Mm-hmm. That was actually real brutal democracy. They were even hanged on trees. You know, they were lynched. Yeah. That was that was democracy because if the majority said, "Okay, we want." To get rid of those, if 51% say yes, the 49% don't have a voice. And that's clearly what happened. So now to be more philosophical about the, the, the question you ask, it's a bad system because on top of shutting out uh, the minority, it seeks equality of outcome. That's that's actually the goal. And that's, and that's why if you look at democracy, they always try to create factions. So they use the individual and break that individual into factions. You're white, so you belong to one class of voter. You're male, you belong to another class of voter. You're Christian, so you belong to another class of voters. So you, already as an individual, you already belong to three class of voters, right? So imagine if you're a woman. So you're white, woman, Christian. So you technically, yeah, three class of voters. And then let's say you're gay, another class of voter. So basically, that's what democracy attempts to do is breaking the individual into factions to increase the possibility of uh, the, to, to gain more votes. To, uh, so increase the possibility of getting more votes. That's what it's about. And, and on top of that, it pretty much impedes people, again, to do the things that they're good at. Because, and the system in itself will never favor the, the minorities. But minorities are human beings like you and I, so they have a say in the system too. But if pure democracy is about majority rule, and what if majority is wrong? Now, that means that we have to implement policies that will affect us for generations because policies, when we implement policy, whatever they are, they have like long-term effect. That, that's, what, that's what the thing is about. So when 51% is wrong and they say we're going to implement those policies it's going to affect it, it doesn't just affect the majority itself it affects everyone else that's yeah. the issue if the majority this if the majority has power to vote but it only affects them no problem right so basically they socialize the losses so they privatize the gain in the sense that the gain is the sense that the majority if Three people in the if there are three people in the room, two people agree. The the third one is left out. They they privatize the game here, but if the choice they made is a bad choice, it's going to affect not just the, the two people who made that choice, but the third person that was left out too. Yeah. So that's why it, it's a it, it's not in my opinion it's not a good system. It's a it gives the illusion 
that voting is freedom. Hmm. And people confuse democracy with freedom. Democracy is not freedom. It's not because you get to select your representative or because the, the, the transfer of political power is done peacefully that it is freedom. Freedom is the policies, the permissive policies that allow you to get into the free enterprise. So let me give you an example. Uh, you have countries like, okay, where I'm, f- where, where I'm from in Ivory Coast, right? Uh, between 1960 and 1990, pretty much all African countries were the same. They were all one-party states. That's how it was. That was the, that was the deal. And then you got to choose whether you're with the U.S. or with the Soviet Union. But... Politically, there was no freedom because it was a one-party state. But economically, where, I'm, where I was, where I'm from, we had a liberal economic policy. So people were economically free, mm. but politically they couldn't vote, right? Because we have a one-party state, so it didn't matter. Yeah. So that, that's what it is. So people confuse that because you vote, you're free. No. You're not free because I think the, the person you're voting for is going to implement rules and regulations on you that they don't even implement on themselves. That's the real deal. Yeah. So it's uh, so it's literally unfair. But when you have, let's say, a monarchy or even a dictatorship, but people have the right to start a business, they have the right to choose whatever they want to do. That's freedom. And that, that's real freedom. So democracy is not freedom. It's not because political power is transferred peacefully and you have the right to vote that you're free. That's not freedom. Freedom is about the, the policies implemented that allow you to, to get into the free enterprise. Hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. I really liked what you... Uh, I want to dive deeper into the creating factions aspect because I... This is something I, I probably haven't articulated well, so I'm probably not going to say everything correctly, but I actually find it kind of disgusting when I watch politics and everything is putting people into these categories, like you mentioned. Um, not to make any assumptions, but you'd be put into the black category. I'd be put into the white category. Um We'd both be put into the male category, right? And it's kind of disgusting because it takes away your individuality. Because I've met plenty of white people who have very disparate views. And there's plenty of black people that have very disparate views. And then another thing I'd like you to give me some feedback on is uh, the idea of calling groups communities is kind of weird to me because a community to me the way that it's used seems to be more of political grouping so you know or the black community believes this you can't talk about any large group of people and really summarize what they believe because it's a bunch of individuals and not all of them are going to believe that and the white community believes this so when I hear the word community being used, I see it as somebody wants to talk about a group of people and they want to paint it with a 
broad brush. So they use the word community to kind of hide what they're really doing when they're talking about that group of people, because it seems like a, the opposite of what they're, what it comes off as. Like it, it seems if we're talking about race, it seems actually kind of racist. Or when we're talking about sex, it's kind of, it's more sexist than anything. No, I see exactly what you're saying. In fact, it boils down to one word, or not one word, but one as uh, one statement is shut down critical thinking. That's it. Putting people into groups is to shut down critical thinking. The socialists, those with left leanings, they see society as they have a holistic view of society. Basically, what I mean by holistic is this. They start from top down. They see a group detach from the individuals that make up the group. They see the group in itself as an organic, independent being. So when you're part of that group, your individuality no longer matters. Mm. You give up yourself for the common good. That's one word that the left loves to use, the common good. Mm. Everything you do must be done for the community. But at the end of the day, human beings are self-interested people, no matter how hard we try to be altruistic. So the reality and nature always catch up with us. Eventually, the members of the group, when things start to not go as planned, the critical thinking comes back. Now the issue is that they cannot speak up because the leader of the group, who is still an individual like the rest of the group, is, has imposed his will on everyone else. So, in, so the concept of groupthink is so fallacious because there's always one person who still thinks within the group. Now, instead of a group of people thinking from, for themselves and bringing their thoughts together, it's one person who thinks for everyone else. Hmm. That's why you say, oh, the white community thinks this, the black community, no. The black community doesn't think a certain way. They force you to think that way. And that's where I have, for example, an issue with, uh, with culture because, for example, when you look at black people behaving a certain way, or let's say, right, me, they will say, oh yeah, you're articulate, you went private school, you might be, uh, stop acting white. What does it mean, stop acting white? How being yeah. articulate is a white thing? How using logic is a white thing? Why people didn't create logic? Since when common sense is a white thing? So that means I have to be emotional, I have to be stupid to be black. Basically, you're insulting yourself without even realizing it. How being articulate is, is a white thing. On the contrary, being articulate opens opportunity. It gives you opportunities. You never know. Every person you interact with is an interview. Because if the person you're interacting with likes you and has the capital, boy, that's life-changing opportunities you just hit right there. <laughs> that's why it's important to always be on your best behavior when you interact with people because you don't know when opportunity will strike. And that's not a white thing. That's common sense. That's logic. That's simply being a civilized person. Yeah. Right? But if you say that, oh, you're not black. I'm like, who the hell are you? Did, did you set up a barometer to, to measure 
the Africanness or the blackness of, of someone. And, and that's what group think does. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting phenomenon that people want to instill these ideas and like this is black, this is white, all of this. And it's like you're absolutely right. Like the ability to articulate yourself, the ability to express your ideas and have them understood by the person that you're talking to or the group of people that you're talking to is powerful beyond imagination. There are people who have risen to uh, national presidents in different countries and in our country just based on their ability to speak and have their ideas understood. So I don't think you can understate the importance of being able to articulate your, your ideas well. And that is definitely not limited to any race of people. Like there's, there's no race of people. There's no group of people that have a hold on expressing ideas on anything like that. So it, it, it's quite absurd. And when, when people use the term community and to talk about that would you say they're trying to instill characteristics on everyone in the group that they're trying to paint? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's all, you see, it's important to understand semantics because there's certain words they use. And if you stand up against those words or because the reason why you stand up is because you understand the, the actual meaning behind it or the intent behind it. So you're like, I don't think with this bull- bullshit. Sorry for 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 cussing. Oh, you can figure that out, but <laughs> I don't deal with that crap, right? So you understand, but then they will see that you are against the common good because yeah. using community, using equality, using democracy, those words pertains to the common good, and the common good is a good thing to aspire. How can you dare to be against the common good? Yeah. Right, we all want the same thing. No, we don't want the same thing. That's what we're individuals. What you want is not what I want, bro. <laughs> I don't have to subscribe to your thing. You don't have to subscribe to mine. That's why we live in a free country and we have the First Amendment, which protects our freedom to think for ourselves. Yeah. Otherwise, what's the point? So that, that that's why the concept of community is 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 it's foolish. In fact, it is dangerous. It is dangerous. It is uh, it is sneaky. It is sneaky, yeah. Because if you already you say, especially as a white man, you say, "Oh no, like I don't believe in this." You know, you you know the the race label will be attached to you asap. Yeah, asap. <laughs> Although you haven't done anything wrong, they'll say, "Oh yeah, he's a racist." Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I think the community thing brings other things down the road too. Like I've heard, you know, you can hear a criticism, you can hear a white person criticizing a black person, accusing them of voting against their own interests. Or you can hear it for the other groups too. And it's amazing when I hear that because I'm like, that is so condescending to tell somebody. Thank you. That was the word I was going to use. That they're individual view is against their own interest somehow because of you have a perception of what their view f- should be because of their skin color or what's yeah. in their pants yeah. or yeah it, it's just wild yeah it's it's me for example people we say that i'm a sellout i'm an uncle tom who did i sell to 
And it's funny because those who always say that Blacks who don't subscribe to the general dogma of the Black community are sellout are actually richer than those who call sellout. <laughs> it's always that. If you, for example, a guy like Al Sharpton, he would say, oh, you're a sellout. Bro, you're making millions. I don't have your millions. How am I a sellout? Yeah. Dr. Umar, oh, yeah, this guy's a sellout. No, I'm not. Oh, he's a coon. Bro, you are making millions of dollars. I don't have your money. Who am I selling you to? What am I selling? Yeah. It's, it's that that's always how it is. It's it's all it, it because it's all boils down to, as I said, shutting down critical thinking. Because it is easier to brainwash ten people than to brainwash one individual. Because the individual you're called you're, you're talking to will ask you questions. Okay, you say this, but how do you explain this? You say that, how it leads to that. The critical thinking is working. But when you're talking to 10 people, they, they will start um, believing whatever you say simply because it sounds good or it sounds true. And one thing I always say is that it's not because something is logically consistent that it is empirically true. Hmm. And you have, for example, uh, Again, I can use Dr. Umar as an example. Dr. Umar is a very articulate guy, for right? He's a very articulate. That's why he has a huge following base. People yeah. believe in what he's saying. But Dr. Umar never showed evidence, empirical evidence from studies of everything he talks about. People buy into it because it appeals to the emotions. And it appeals to the emotions because in their mind, logically, it makes sense. Yes, I agree. Logically, it makes sense. But does it mean that it is empirically true? Not necessarily. We have to test that. Yeah. And 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 and, and that's the thing. So it's it's so when you talk to, to to 10 people or more, when nine of those 10 people agree, they will impose the will on you and force you to agree with them. Democracy. You know, that kind of makes me think of uh, hypnosis. There's a phenomenon with hypnotists where they'll bring people on stage and those people that might not be susceptible on a one-on-one session, um, they might be susceptible because of the idea of the the hypnotist being in a, a power position. But in general, the hypnotist has more influence on the individual in front of a group of people because that person feels like they need to, there's an expectation on them to go along with what's expected. It's the placebo effect. Yeah. The placebo effect. Yeah. I, I watched actually a documentary on the dark side of, of the mega church, right? The mm. force miracles, they perform and everything. Yeah. You see someone sitting in the wheelchair and then suddenly the guy gets up and start walking. Oh God, perform the miracle and all this stuff. In fact, it's because, for example, when I use that very example of the person sitting in the wheelchair and then they perform the quote-unquote miracle and then the guy gets up, it's the placebo effect, meaning that that person in its mind was already prepared to react that way. Yeah. And then if you ask that same pastor to perform that very same miracle again after 48 hours, it will not work. Mm. So, that's how it, so that's how it is. Like, so when you bring someone on stage the person is already expecting. So they adjust the mind and the body to react to that expectation. 
Yeah. So, yeah. Can we dive into economics a little bit? I, I'm wondering... Please do. We're $34 trillion in debt as a nation, as, mm-hmm. as the United States is right now. What does that mean? How did we get here? And where is it going? Great. Okay. I recently finished working on a book called Understanding the Credit-Based System. You're actually the first to know about this. I haven't done any announcement yet on the publishing website. No one knows, so you're the first. Congratulations. (laughs) Um, How did we get to those $34 trillion in debt? Uh, We got there by this phenomenon called printing money, expanding credit, and money is worthless. Money is worthless because, as you know, we have a fiat currency. It is not based by anything but by debt. And the problem with money being based on debt is that you are basically using the real value of future resources for present consumption. That's what debt is about. That's what debt is hard. That's what when you're in debt, it's hard to grow. And that's why I always say, even at the low, at the private level, I always say never start a business by going to debt. It doesn't make sense. You don't know how much money you're going to make. You don't know what your cash flow will be. Yes, you did all these projections on your business plan. That's business plan. There's reality. Once you launch the business, it's on the market. How much money are you making per month or per year? What is yeah. the cash flow? If you don't know that, you should never start with debt because no matter how much you're making, you have to service the debt. So it prevents or reduces your growth. We have $34 trillion in debt. We have a GDP of $25 trillion. Normally, the GDP of the U.S. should be at least $100 trillion. We produce so much. But because of the national debt, we're $25 trillion. And we, we are $25 trillion and we are, and we are $34 trillion in debt. So that means that we're over-leveraged. It means that the government, the, the U.S. has more liabilities than assets, especially especially on the government balance sheet. The government balance sheet, uh, in uh, the asset side is probably five or ten trillions, and the debt side is thirty-four trillion. Yeah. So when the government borrows money constantly to spend on whatever they call, you know, to grow the economy, it it creates what we call the crowding out effect. The crowding out effect means that the government now competes with private businesses for resources. And so when the government prints money, which adds to the national debt, it increases interest rates for everybody. You see, it, it comes back again to my point of socializing the losses. So government makes a decision that affects everybody, whether you were part of that decision or not. So the interest payments on those intre- on, on, on the national debt divert not just government but private um, businesses from productive investment because it makes us it makes harder for us now to borrow money because the more the, the debt increases, the higher the interest payment becomes. And those interest payments that we have to contribute as a society to the national debt increase the cost of living. Hmm. That's why people don't realize. Because how 
do you justify for that? The average cost of education back in the United States, uh, back uh, before 1971, was roughly $2,000. Now, that same cost of education is 50, 55, maybe 60K a year. Yeah. Right? It's, be- it's because of the national debt, because the national debt increased the cost of living. But the cost of living is not equal to the living standard necessarily. Yes, the, the living standard of the United States has tremendously increased. Absolutely. We produce a lot. But government is doing economics the wrong way. Because what government is trying to do is to create economic growth by stimulating demand. You don't create economic growth by stimulating demand. You create economic growth by stimulating supply. Because supply creates its own demand. You create a product, right? You have a prototype. That's how it works. You have a prototype. You put that prototype in the market to see how people will react to that prototype. And when that pro- when people like it, it gains traction. And when that traction now grows significantly, you can now turn that prototype into the finished product and put it in the market. And that's how you create a market. And then as people like the product, demand grows. Hmm. But when you try to stimulate demand rather than supply, what you do is that you're putting money in people's hand for a for the quantity of goods and services that doesn't match that demand. And it's that mismatch that creates inflation. Inflation is the result of a mismatch between uh, the price of goods and services and the quantity of goods and services. That's all it is. And inflation is not created by anything else than government because government has the power to print money. Yeah. Yeah. So people will say, oh, inflation is created by corporate greed. It's nonsense. It is created by government printing money because money is, is, uh, is non-neutral, meaning that it affects the economy, when you inject money in the economy, whether you inject or retract money, there's an effect in it. It doesn't, it always affects people. With, uh, you'll hear people talk about, um, I don't want my taxes to go to that. And I don't want my taxes to go to that. And my understanding is your taxes aren't actually going to anything but paying the interest on the debt. Is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And the reason why is because Government, so there are two ways for government to raise money. They can raise through tax revenue or they can raise through borrowing. If government try to use tax revenue to fund their expenditures or to fund their, their stuff, no one would be incentivized to work because you really have to tax people almost like 90%, right? If you're making... Yeah. Right, like whatever you make, government pay ninety percent of what you're making, so you will no longer be incentivized to work. So government then rather borrows, so that it is no longer constrained by how much money it can raise to to meet its obligations and fund its expenses. That's what it is. So pretty much, and that's why Ken said uh, it is okay to run deficits to. Um, to stimulate economic growth. That, that, again, it's nonsense. Yeah. Think about this, right? Let's say your podcast is your business. Imagine, you maybe for the first two years, you can run your podcast on a deficit, sure, because you're trying to grow it. Yeah. But eventually, you have to turn a profit because 
profit is what shows the health, the financial health of a, of, of an organization. If your organization is not profitable, eventually it's going to collapse. But the but government doesn't have the profit motive. Why? Because, and this is our fault. It's our fault because we are the one who say we believe that government should do X, Y, Z for us. Yeah. But the things we say that government should do for us is not free either. Government has to get the money from somewhere to do those things. So when it borrows money and to do those things, the profit motive of government here is to, is, is to increase its electoral base. Because when we see government doing more things for us, now we're not encouraged to rely more on the government to continue providing goods and services to us. But what's funny is that those goods and services the government provides, they, I, they, it actually takes it from the private sector to start with. It's, it uses existing resources from the private sector and they transfer it to the public sector and resell those to us. Nothing new. Because government, by essence, creates nothing. Yeah. It doesn't create anything. It doesn't produce any value in its own, or any value on its own. One of my biggest positions politically is I'm anti-war. I think war is a horrible. I don't. I don't know if I can call it a human invention. It definitely has a, a human aspect that no other animal has. But uh, I think there is war among chimpanzees and stuff like that. So I think you might see war in the animal kingdom, but we have perfected the disgusting aspects of war as human beings. And I'm, I'm very anti-war. And the way I look at fiat money and um, central banking is uh, if the United States government, like you said, it, they'd have to tax us 90% to pay for everything that they want to pay for. If the United States government or any government one day said, hey, we want to go to war with this country, but it's going to take a lot of resources and we need to take 90% of your money. There would be a revolt overnight. Like no one would stand for that or hopefully no one would stand for that. But fiat money and the central banking system allows them to do that like in an underhanded way. They say, because people don't realize what's going to happen down the road. Like some people do like, I mean, we know what's happening when when they print more money. We know that our whatever we have in our bank account right now is going to be worth less in a year. We know that, but it's a way for them to do it. And instead of taxing us now ninety percent, they promise to reduce the value of our money by ninety percent in the long run or more. Because inflation is a hidden tax to start with. Yeah, and in fact, I want to emphasize the point you made about war and central banking, the relationship. In fact, paper money, paper currency was created for that, to service wars, because you can never service a war when your currency is tied to a commodity, because a commodity is a finite resource, right? And so commodity money is very useful and effective during time of peace. But during time of wars, because a commodity is a finite resource and the war demands a lot of those resources 
to be used to to be financed. Therefore, we only rely on paper money. So paper. So in fact, war. In my opinion, I'm pretty much speculating here. I don't have any empirical evidence to back this up. But in my opinion, I think that war. I think that central banking was actually created to service wars. Yeah. Because there's no other way, especially before capitalism became the dominant system in the world, we have mercantilism, right? And mercantilism is a system where it believes that the wealth of a nation is based on uh, the amount of golds and, and raw materials that a nation possess. But gold and, and, and raw materials are finite resource again. So how a nation then increases its uh, its wealth when your wealth is based on gold and other raw materials. You have to conquer other territories. How you do that? Through war. Yeah. That's mercantilism. That's why we had colonization, technically. Yeah. I uh, Have you by chance read The Creature from Jekyll Island? No, I have not. Okay. So he, uh, G. Edward Griffin is the author, and he... He can get a little bit conspiratorial, but I don't think he's wrong on a lot of things. Um, but he pretty much makes that same argument that fiat money was created for war. Let me make a point. It's not to cut you off, but I yeah. think conspiracy theory is not a bad thing. Yeah, I agree. I think conspiracy theory, in fact, raise points that people never thought of. That's all it is. And when you raise points that the majority never thought of the believers of democracy say that you're you're a conspiracist yeah all you do is think okay what if that's all conspiracy is like not conspiracy but that's all it's about it's the what if have you thought of that because everything is possible so it's important to look at things holistically from every angle that's what i wanted to to add well, yeah, and and conspiracies really do exist too. <laughs> like there are, yeah, it does. Like the the book that I was mentioning, mentioning uh, the creature from Jekyll Island. There is a place off the coast of the United States. It's uh, I think off the coast of Atlanta, if I'm not mistaken, or not Atlanta, Georgia. Um, but it's it's part of the United States. But there was a meeting in the early 1900s between. Uh, it, the owner of Chase, uh, I forget his name, but Chase and a few other of the major, major players in economics, and that's when the Federal Reserve was created. So the whole book revolves around the creation of the Federal Reserve, which is a very interesting entity. I mean, it's a it's an entity that's not part of the government, but runs alongside of it and makes decisions that impact every person in the country yeah i think that the whole uh notion of they're not part of the government it's yeah like okay because they have shareholders and stuff like that the government doesn't have shareholders yes but the federal reserve to me is the is the monetary branch of the government that's how i see it. They, they literally it's the bank of the government yeah if the government needs to borrow money, who they borrow it from? From the Federal Reserve, they sell government bonds. The Federal Reserve gives them the liquidity. 
that's it. So it's literally the Federal Reserve, the National Bank or the Central Bank. Basically, central banking has always been the banking of government. That's it. So yeah. although the Federal Reserve may not be officially a government entity like the Treasury, like the U.S. Treasury may be, to me, it is government. It's all part of the government. Yeah. And I have to say, I, I do agree with you as far as conspiracy theories. I, you're just asking what if most conspiracy theories, very, very few conspiracy theorists are any danger to anybody. Like, yeah. You might see occasional sporadic examples of where somebody takes things too far, but people take other thoughts and ideas too far too. And honestly, if I met somebody and if I meet somebody and they don't have a single conspiracy theory, something designated as a conspiracy theory that they don't consider possible, I, I would assume I'm dealing with a non-thinking person, like somebody yeah. who doesn't critically think at that point because yeah. I was thinking the other day, you know, there's, there's people that will dis, disregard something as a conspiracy theory because of politics, you know, and, and, the United States is one of the most powerful nations in the world right now. They have been for the last, since World War II, basically. And you can go to a country with a very small GDP and the stakes to get to be at the top position in that country, to be president or whatever the position is, are insanely high. And we're talking about countries with insignificant GDPs as far as the world is concerned. So if you don't think the stakes are infinitely higher when it comes to countries like the United States or uh, China, Russia, any of these countries with larger GDPs and a bigger global footprint as far as uh, a geopolitical footprint, I think it's absurd to discount things as conspiracy theories without looking into them more and considering it because conspiracies absolutely happen in the United States. And I mean, I was talking to a friend about this and he mentioned, well, 9-11 is a conspiracy, no matter what way you look at it. Like what happened is if you believe the, the main narrative of 9-11 that. So it's an inside job. Yeah. Well, not, not even that it's an inside job, but if you believe that hijackers hijacked planes and crashed them into buildings, which I believe that happened. That's a conspiracy right there. Whether you believe anything of government involvement, you believe in a conspiracy because a conspiracy was necessary to make that happen. Well, we can even brush on the war in Iraq, right? Those yeah. who saw what was happening earlier called it and people said they were conspiracists. But yeah. the war in Iraq, because Dick Cheney said Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. There's no evidence. There's no evidence. Yeah. And yet he manufactured that whole thing so that the United States can go into Iraq. But why? Because at the time, in addition to being the VP of the United States, he also had stakes in Halliburton, which is a major oil company. And Halliburton was extracting oil in Iraq. Yeah. Right? So this is, <laughs> he was like, sure, he couldn't be the CEO, but he, he was still like members of the board of directors. Like he was perhaps the chairman of the board. So he has a massive interest 
So this whole thing was manufactured up to today. Up to today. They were never able to prove that there was a weapons of mass destruction. That's even why Colin Powell gave up. He said, I, I can't be part of this. In fact, in my opinion, I believe that George W. Bush and Dick Cheney should be tried. They, they deserve the death penalty for lying to the American people. They, they should be sent to, um, to, to the Hague in the Netherlands. But of course, the, the U.S. is not part of the, of the chart that, you know, uh, that create the, uh, the international court. Yeah. But if the U.S. was part of that, they should be tried because the, the same way we, they did the Nazis and in, in, in Nuremberg, George <laughs> W. The Bush administration should be tried for that too because they manufactured that. They sent thousands of of soldiers there to wage a war for no reason, killing people for no reason. And I, and and they say it's in the name of democracy. First of all, Arabs did not ask for democracy. Democracy doesn't the the culture of democracy doesn't work in every place. Arab culture, it's a totalitarian culture. That's how they live. That's how they like it. You're not going to go and with your liberal philosophies and say that, oh, everyone is equal, liberty, people are free. No. Arabs, they, there's a reason why, for example, Saudi Arabia, they have a monarchy. If the Saudis don't like the monarch, they can, they can overthrow the guy because we know that Arabs are pretty good at expressing themselves with violence. They don't hesitate. So in Iraq... It's, it's, it's the same. Arab culture is a totalitarian culture. They, they, they always need a strong leader to lead them. Whether it, if it's not a strong leader like a person, it's a strong dictatorial or, or totalitarian system because even Islam in itself is a totalitarian religion. And when I say totalitarian, it's because, and people, you see, people confuse dictatorship with, with dictatorship with totalitarianism. Dictatorship is simply absolute political power that's what it, it that's what dictatorship is totalitarianism is absolute control if, over every aspect of someone's life mm. that's what totalitarianism is so if you have absolute control over someone else's life you're a totalitarian that's what it is and people confuse the two yeah so and when you look at islam islamic religion it's all about what you're not supposed to do. It's a very punitive and restrictive religion. You're supposed to pray a certain way. You're supposed to wake up at this hour. You're not allowed to eat this and that. And yo, <laughs> leave me be. But that's but that's Islamic culture. That's the Islamic religion. So the whole thing of going to Iraq to impose democracy was nonsense. And they knew it was nonsense. They had to manufacture it. Yeah, and it's, I mean, that's the same excuse is used today for everything. You know, we have to protect democracy here, but then when democracy doesn't serve us, we need to fight against it and hide the fact that we're fighting against democracy. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's wording. You know, there's a, when I was younger, I would pay attention to wording a lot. And I, I remember watching, uh, insurance commercials. And I remember the wording that was used was always interesting to me. Maybe you see a Geico commercial and it says, people who switched from Allstate to Geico saved an average of 20% on their car insurance. And you see an Allstate commercial and it says, people who switched from Geico saved an average of 30% on their car insurance. And 
I don't know how many people think about that, but for me, it was always something that I caught my attention because I'm like, well, okay, they're playing with words here. Yeah, it's all semantics. They're they're messing with you. They're they're con- confusing people because sure, the people that switched saved money, but it doesn't tell you how many people looked for the quote and it was ten times higher for them or twenty percent higher for them, and they it didn't make sense to switch. There could have been one person that switched from Allstate to Geico because it was cheaper. And they can use that and say that. And it's true because that one person who switched saved 20%. But everyone else who looked at the prices would have been paying more had they switched. So it's just semantics, like you said, just a way of wording things and making it true. They're not lying, but they're not really telling the truth either. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you have a. Do you have an opinion on Bitcoin at all? Yeah, I do. I um, I do, and I personally don't believe in it. Uh, I know it's uh, many free marketeers see Bitcoin as uh, the new form of money. Some even see it as an investment, and uh, they think it's the future, which is it possibly is, but. To me, I don't think it's, I don't see it as like the new thing to literally put your life savings in. And it's not just even Bitcoin by any financial markets. And this is something I'm going to say, like people need to understand. When you see people crying on TV, oh yeah, I put my life savings into this. And then it, I was for, I'm like, why are you putting your life savings into something you do not have 100% control? Yeah. Why? And it's not just Bitcoin. Bitcoin could be crypto, it could be stocks, bonds, whatever type of financial market, even commodities, it doesn't matter. The only thing you should ever put your life savings in, except your, by, except your, your savings account, is your business. Because you have full control over your business. You control the structure of the business. You control the investors, basically who you want to invest. You control who you want to hire. You control the expenses of your business. You have absolute 100% full control on your business. You don't have control over how a company, whatever stocks you invest, even the most stable stocks, I think that you don't have control over the decisions made. You don't have control over stocks. You don't have control over bonds. You don't have control over commodities let alone Bitcoin, crypto. Now, when it comes to Bitcoin, I don't believe in it for a few reasons. Number one, it is not backed by anything. Uh, It is not backed by any tangible asset. It's strictly based on supply and demand. And what I find quite irritating is the fact that uh, people have to keep hype it up so that others will invest. I think when something has real value, you don't have to hype it up all the time. You don't have to do aggressive marketing and put down on people's throat so that they put money in it. It speaks for itself. For example, Amazon. Jeff Bezos doesn't have to hype Amazon for us to buy stuff on it. We go willingly on Amazon and buy things. That's why Amazon stocks keeps growing. Same for Tesla. Elon Musk doesn't have to publicize, have to hype it up like, oh yeah, this is your last chance to, 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 to make money, otherwise you're done. No. We buy Tesla because we believe that Teslas are good cars. But crypto, people have to keep hype it up so that others will put money in it. That's the only way to grow. So it is extremely volatile because it's not backed by anything. Number two, 
crypto is very slow in terms of transactions. It makes, I think, seven transactions per second, whereas Visa and MasterCards make 24,000 transactions per second. So why should I go on Bitcoin? So to me, like, I understand the decentralization aspects. That's that's fair. That's fair. But to me, it's not something I will put a dime in. I never put a single dime in crypto because... Yeah. I, I I don't think that if because it's all about speculation, it's even the the level of speculation is even worse than commodities. Because at least commodities they're actually tangible assets. When you invest in in oil, when you invest in in um, soybean, all of that is they're tangible. You know them. You can cr- create like futures contract. But with crypto, it, you can't do any of that. It's all based on supply and demand. So there is no uh, real value behind it. And on top of that, I'm a guy who loves my dividends. Crypto doesn't pay any dividend. Every stock I invest in, they always pay dividend. Crypto doesn't. So basically you buy and you have to wait for someone who will be willing to pay a higher price for you to exit. That's not, no, that's not a life. So it depends why people invest in crypto. Those invest because uh, those who see it as an investment want to be rich. That's their that's their uh, that's the right they can do it if they want. Personally, I wouldn't because, as I said, I'm not going to put money into something I don't have control over. It's stupid to do that. And again, what I say is not just for crypto, but for any asset that you do not have control over, except your business. So if you want to build wealth, build a business. Don't build crypto. I said don't build crypto. Don't put your life savings into crypto. You can put some money if you want. Absolutely. I'm not saying don't put any money. If you believe that it has value, if, if you believe that it's going to become uh, the thing in the future, be my guest and go ahead. But see, when we compare even crypto to stocks, stocks, you you you, you know that it will have something because it's based on a business. Yeah. A stock is a business. Crypto is based on nothing. You don't even know tomorrow if it will uh, increasing value or not. You have no idea. But a business, you know, and you you can, because a business has, has um, uh, intrinsic value. That's that that's why I invest in stocks compared to, all, all those stocks are very volatile too, don't get me wrong. Yeah. So I'm, I do believe in crypto. I, uh, I'm not a Bitcoin maxi though. Like I, I believe some of the arguments for Bitcoin, Bitcoin are very solid, but I don't necessarily believe Bitcoin is, the answer. So I have to push back on a couple things. Uh, yeah, I don't that's know. Pick your brain. Um, what backs gold? Is pretty much the trust we have in it as a uh, store of value. We believe that gold has value because it's, uh, it's a precious metal. We consider it a precious metal the same way with diamonds. Diamonds is precious because of its scarcity. Yeah. That's what actually backs gold. So I think Bitcoin would be horrible money for like interacting. <laughs> like if if you and I like if you and I wanted to uh if you and I went out for dinner and it was like a hundred dollars and I wanted to pay for my half of that, I need to send you fifty dollars. The Bitcoin fees might be fifteen dollars. So you'd only end up with thirty thirty five dollars. And then if you want to send that thirty five to somebody it costs you 15 so you'd only be able to really send about 20 bucks. Mm. So as an actual as actual money, I don't think Bitcoin works. I think other cryptos 
could be better in that regard. But I would argue that the scarcity aspect, the trust isn't quite there, but the scarcity reality is just as there for Bitcoin as it is for gold. Actually, probably the the scarcity aspect is even better for Bitcoin because we actually do know exactly how many Bitcoin will ever exist. Yeah, so, I think it's 21 million. That is the total supply. Yeah, I think I think 21 million is the number. So I think, and here's something else I want to touch on. With stocks, and I was talking to my friend about this because I actually do believe, I don't think it'll work out this way, but I think it would be interesting if, I think one way that the people can take control back away from the government and the reckless spending is if people, and you'll see this in countries as their dollars collapse. I think fiat money, the end result of fiat money is going to be zero, no matter what, over a oh, long yeah. enough period of time. So if people exited out of the US dollar and went into Bitcoin and mass, I think that would strip the power of the United States government to print money indefinitely because it wouldn't, it would decrease the value of the US dollar substantially if everyone fled the US dollar. Um, but with stocks specifically, I had this thought, okay, so one of the ways that people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk avoid paying taxes on their stocks is they take out a loan against their stocks, right? Well, those people are major shareholders in their own companies. They own a large amount of the shares. So if they were to sell those shares that they just took out a loan against, the stock price would go down significantly. It wouldn't crash or anything, but it would, it would make a dent in the price. Instead, they take out a loan which means the stock stays there, but now they have debt. So they have money owed against the stock amount that they bought. I feel like that is creating... So I feel like the whole economy when it comes to the US dollar and stocks to some degree is kind of a house of cards. And by taking out loans against those stocks and not selling them, they get to keep the price high of the stocks. And now they have debt against those stocks. So now the stock price is dependent on what is done with that debt that was taken out. Because if if something, if the debt is used recklessly and they can't pay it back, then the stock has to sell. And I feel like it creates an in more, not inflation, but it creates more of a bubble around those assets than it needs to be. What do you think about that? You're not wrong, but um, I'm going to add some elements to what you just said. Usually when those guys take these loans, that means that they perhaps have like five or 10 times the amount to cover the loan. Otherwise they would not take in the first place. Um, Those are we talking about, we call them margin loans and they're not taxed. That's in fact why they take those loans. Instead, because you don't have to do, you're, you're, you're never taxed on the loan. So that's how people who are financially savvy use debt to increase their wealth. And that's how even most billionaires live. In fact, it shows the power of ownership. 
that's all it's about. That's why ownership is a very powerful thing. That's why we always, that's even one of the reasons why people create businesses so that they can use, instead of using the mortgage, they can use their, their shares or the entire business as collateral to take those loans. So it's true that it does create inflation because the commercial bank creates money to give them as a loan. But again, they're like, if they take whatever the amount of loan they're taking, they usually have five or 10 times the amount in the bank to cover the loan. That's why they, they can afford taking that. Uh, otherwise, I don't think they would be doing anything. Plus, as you know, those guys are very wealthy. They have like financial advisors who, you know, they consult before yeah. making any of those, before taking making any of those actions or taking any of those actions. So, uh, but you do have a point and I do agree that if, you know, they were not smart enough and they did what they're doing uh, without the financial, without the financial literacy backing them up, yeah, it will create a major disruption in the economy. Absolutely. Not just for the company itself, but the economy because their companies weigh so much. If a company like Amazon tanks is going to take a toll on the entire economy, literally, same for Tesla or, you know, Berkshire Hathaway or, you know, any major corporation. Yeah. Um, as far as, We've had a history of, in 2001, the airlines had to get bailed out after 9-11 happened. In, uh, I, I think, 2008, GM and uh, other companies had to get bailed out. Mm-hmm. Is the reason that we have to bail out these companies because we did it once and then we just got hooked? If there's a reason? Like, in my opinion... We should never have bailed out GM. Like people act like, oh, what would it do to the economy? Well, the assets, the hard assets are not going anywhere. They would be bought up by somebody for pennies on the dollar. And then somebody would else somebody would be able to start another business with those same assets at a discount. And the economy would ultimately bounce back to some to some degree. There might be economic downturn from it for sure. But we keep having these bailouts and it creates a bigger and bigger bubble in my opinion. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with you. It's, um, they're just more hazards. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's a problem with central banking. Yeah. Bailing out doesn't help because I did some research on free banking, specifically Scottish free banking. And if you ask, right, the average American, should, should we abolish the Federal Reserve? They'd be like, no, no way. Although there's plenty of reasons to abolish it. The two major economic crises in human recorded history happened under central banking. Federal, the, the Great Depression and the Great Recession. We have more like recessions under the, 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 the Federal Reserve the value of currency is tanking. So you know that there's plenty of reasons to get rid of it. And people still can't imagine life and the economy without a central authority allocating resources for us instead of yeah. relying on ourselves. That now, uh, that brings me to Scottish uh, free banking. 
One interesting thing about Scottish free banking is that it was a very stable system. There was no central bank. Banks compete with one another. But what made it stable was the fact that it had unlimited liability. So that means that the owners of the bank had their personal wealth attached to the bank so they cannot get into reckless lending practices like the way Lehman Brothers did in 2008 and, you know, and creating an entire collapse of the economy. That was the beauty of free banking. Because what people don't understand about the free market, the free market forces you to be responsible. Because if you mess up, there are consequences. Yeah. But when you have central a central authority backing things, you're like, why should I care? I can engage into reckless lending practices. At the end of the day, if there's a bank run, the the government will come and save me. Therefore, yeah, it, it completely disincentivizes uh, organization to have any market discipline. That's a problem with bailouts. That's why when companies fail, let them fail so that those who are coming will behave. That's number one. Number two, it's normal for a company to fail. People don't understand that the market is a process. It's an organism, right? When a company fails, the way I see is that it means that that company has uh, has reached its point and therefore evaporates and a new company is now coming to take over. For example, even in 2008, right, many banks were failing like Lehman Brothers, and I think there are two or a few other banks that failed. Why we all focus on the housing market collapsing because of those banks, you know, um, giving loans to underwater borrowers? There was a new, uh, new companies were getting formed in Silicon Valley, creating a, a larger market. WhatsApp, uh, Facebook was now becoming much bigger. Instagram was being created. So all these tech companies now were, were basically filling the vacuum of that ecosystem. So that's what the market is, in, is an organism that filled itself out because we say nature harbors a vacuum. Someone goes, there's someone to replace it. And it's important for people to understand the market that way rather than thinking that we need a central authority to come and regulate this and that and that and that. People who are actually making up the central authority are themselves human beings like you and I. They're flooded people. They will make bad decisions. But the worst part is that they don't pay the consequences of their bad decisions. So, yeah, with uh, take GM, for instance, I would imagine, I haven't looked this up, I should, but I'd imagine the value of GM right now is higher than it was when it was bailed out, which is absurd when you think about it it's like they they shouldn't be worth more than when they were be not like right when they were failing but prior to that when they were you know 2006 or so they're probably worth a bit more than that because they had money pumped in that they didn't have to do anything for they just were given money and able to create more yeah um but as far as these bailouts are concerned, is the reason that we're, we seem to be stuck in this cycle of bailing out large enough companies, 
is this because we did it once and then we just got hooked and we just couldn't stop doing it? Like we did it once and it's like, well, we build out a, a $2 billion company. Now we can't not bail out the $3 billion company. Okay, now we can't not bail out the $10 billion company. We can't just let these companies fail. No, you're absolutely right. In fact, yes, I will literally back your point that yes, because we're stuck. And I think once you start this, rent seekers come to you. So big companies now lobby, right? They use the practice of rent seeking. They buy political favors. They say, okay, we're going to help you get in office. We're going to help you do this in exchange. If we have issues, you're going to bail us out. That's the whole reason why we're backing you. Mm. That's how it works because it happened once. And now central authorities are forced to keep doing it if they, if, if they want to keep their jobs too. Because that's all it's that's what it's about. Because I don't yeah. think they just bail them out because oh yeah, they're big. No, it's because there's a commitment underneath. They say, okay, those guys give us a lot of money to, you know, for campaigns and stuff like that. We have to. Because those bailouts, uh those bailouts are actually laws. They're 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 actually legislations passed by senators. And those senators are backed by big corporations. So they have to, but I totally agree with you. It's because it happened once and now they got hooked with their hands tied. They have no choice. So even, if, even when they believe that, even when they know that deep down, yeah, we should let them fail. But because there is a, some sort of contract between them, they're forced to respect their, their, their hand of the bargain. Otherwise, yeah. you know, there will be repercussions. So, We've talked about the problems with the economy and and some of, I I typically refer to it as a house of cards because I think it is a house of cards. Um, What is the solution? Is there a solution? Or are we just kind of heading in a certain direction and there's no turning around? Oh, no, there is a solution. The question is like, will the government want to implement that? That's a question. Of course, there is a solution. The solution is, will be to bring uh, the economy back to a commodity-based economy. But government will not want to do that because it will restrain its power of spending. Like if you have, when you tie your, your your entire economy to a finite resource, where you can't just spend the way you want to spend. You have to spend accordingly to the amount of, uh, to the fixed amount of, you know, of that uh, finite resource you have in store. So government will not want to do that. Because they will say, well, if we do it, we won't be able to build schools for you. We won't be able to build roads for you. We won't be able to create those programs for you. It goes against your interest. We need to spend so that you'll be okay. So, of course, one way, for example, to reduce the national debt is for government to reduce its size. But government will not want that. They create programs every year with hundreds, if not thousands of employees for no reason. Right. So that's one way to do it. But no, it's they, they, they will not want to, although there's a solution to it. It's to tie money back to uh, to to a commodity so that the dollar will, will regain its value. It will increase the purchasing power of people and it will contain inflation. Any person who tells you that inflation is necessary for the economy doesn't understand economics at all. Yeah, doesn't at all. 
how would that work? So we have $34 trillion of debt. Mm-hmm. Let's say we go back to a gold standard somehow. How would that actually look as far as returning to, to the gold standard and having $34 trillion in fiat debt? The, the problem is that the, the, in order for us to first return to the gold standard, we have to pay off the debt. And, you know, economists say, well, you know, we owe it to ourselves so we don't have to. No, you have to. And the way we pay up the debt is through the future generations because they're the ones that are incurring the cost of living. Today, right, a house costs $430,000. In 10, maybe 15 years, that very same house will cost a million. Although it didn't grow in size, its value may not necessarily did not necessarily increase, but the price has increased because of that. So we, the future generations are paying the debt, which is not fair to them. They will incur a cost of living that is way higher than what it's supposed to be. So we have to first pay up the debt ourselves, then now tie money to that commodity, tie money to gold to that commodity. So, uh, so that's a question here, like. How are we going to pay that debt first? If we have to borrow them to pay, it's like a Ponzi scheme, right? It's like it is. It is a it is a Ponzi scheme. It's a and that's why I say the central bank is technical Ponzi scheme because you you when you use old debt, when you use new borrowed money to buy an old debt, that new money you 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 use now has interest too. And then it goes on and on and it never it never stops. So that's what the trick is. Yeah. How to pay it, what method. Definitely we cannot borrow more to completely pay the 34 trillion. So we in, so now we're we're in that vicious uh, cycle. So it, it, it's hard, but that is literally the way to first pay off the debt, be debt-free, then build wealth. The same way at your personal level, you know, if you have like student loans. You want to pay your loans first, then now build wealth. It's the same for the nation, but that that will require drastic changes. Yeah. Uh, it's funny you mentioned Ponzi scheme. Obviously, I have some pro-Bitcoin, pro-crypto arguments, and uh, I've heard people <laughs> call Bitcoin a Ponzi scheme. And every time I hear someone say that, I'm like, so what do you think about the U.S. dollar? <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> no, I, I personally don't think it's necessarily that crypto is necessarily Ponzi scheme. It's, it's just I personally like my view yeah. is that you know it's not backed by anything. And I just think in general for people, as I said again, right, like people are free to invest in it. I just tell people I don't put your life savings because yeah, you know putting yeah. your life savings something you don't control. It's like expecting, uh, it's like expecting a miracle. Yeah. Technically, that's what it is. Like you put your money into something and then you want, and then you have faith that it will magically, no, you change your life. Not something else will. That's what even me who invest in stocks, I don't put all my money in stocks. Never. No way. Yeah. Yeah. No way. And honestly, I, I love the idea of the U.S. economy and the debt being paid off and going, returning back to a gold standard or something. But you know, we have people like Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell. They're, I don't even know how old. They're both probably either 70s or 80s. And it's like, they're not going to be around to see the consequences of all the destruction that they created. And that's typical of most people in Congress. Like, 
that it's not their problem. It's, it's the next person's problem. And with presidents, it's the same thing. It's like Joe Biden has no incentive to fix anything on his watch because he's out in a maximum of five years. So one to five years and he's gone. And then it's the next guy's problem or next woman's problem, whoever. And same thing, whoever gets in next, they don't want to deal with it. They want to pass it on to the next person. So the incentive in in America is to pass the buck, essentially, which is very unfortunate. Yeah, it's um, there is a South African entrepreneur that I follow on Instagram. His name his name is Vusi Tembekwayo. He's a very great speaker. He said something that actually stuck with me. He said politicians are like doctors in a lab who leave the lab before seeing the results of the experiment. Yeah, it's very true. Very true. Right. I love that. Well, Germinal, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I know uh, you have something else to get to after this. So I like to ask most of my guests about books. I know you've written a few books, so feel free to include your books that you've written. What are some books that you would recommend listeners to read? Uh, some of your favorite books that you've read or written? Well, uh, I would start with mine then. In French, we say, uh, la charité bien ordonnée commence par soi-même, meaning that uh, good charity starts with, with ourselves. So I will recommend uh, a history of wealth distribution in the United States. It's a two-volume book that I wrote uh, last year that was published in, on January 1st, 2023. It basically gives a historical analysis of uh, wealth distribution in the U.S. How did we come up with the inequality we have today? So there's that. Uh, I would recommend books from Thomas Sowell, uh, Basic Economics. That's a classic. Uh, Henry Hazlitt's uh, Economics in One Lesson. These two books, so Hazlitt and Thomas Sowell's book, are quite similar. It's about economics, like very like the fundamental Principles of Economics. I would recommend also um, books from Ludwig von Mises. There's one book called Socialism. It's a 600-page book, but fascinating book, man. Great book. He literally debunked socialism from every possible aspect. He did not leave a chance. So I highly recommend people to get that book. And um, Another book that I would recommend is also A Monetary History of the United States by Milton Friedman. Uh, it gives, so basically Milton Friedman gave a, uh, he recounts, you know, a, a history of, of money in the United States. And he gave a very detailed macroeconomic account of the Great Depression. So I know that people who lean more like Austrians, will not agree with Milton Friedman and that's and that's fine and it's fair. And but I think it's important to read his work too, because I, I think he's one of the greatest economists to ever exist. And uh the last book, let me see. The last book I will recommend is The Calculus of Consent. This one is more technical, but it explains so it's an economic analysis of politics. It explains hmm. the way we vote, why we vote a certain way. And how government is not uh, an alternative to correct markets. How government is as flooded as 
people are in the private sector. So it's a great book. Let me actually show it to you here. It's called The Calculus of Consent by uh, James Buchanan. Yeah, it's a very good book. But it, it is, I have to admit, it's quite technical. So, uh, yeah, so be ready if you want to read that. Awesome. Thank you. Um, before we wrap up, uh, could you give listeners a way to find you, uh, find about your publishing company, and anything else that you would like to share? Sure. So uh, anyone can find me on Instagram. That's the uh, the social media platform I'm the most active on. I'm also, of course, on LinkedIn. I'm also on Facebook, and uh, I don't have TikTok. <laughs> I'm not a TikTok guy. Uh, but uh, yeah, so Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. I'm also active on Twitter, but Instagram is the one where I'm the most active. And you guys can visit ggvpublishingcompany.com. That's the the, uh, the website of my publishing company. So for any of you who have written a manuscript that is nonfiction, you have a chance. I'm not I'm not guaranteed that we necessarily accept your manuscript right away. The quality still have to be there, but you have a chance to become an author if you try and if you submit your manuscript to GGV Publishing. So uh, yeah, don't hesitate. Visit the website. We have we publish great authors there. We have the books. You guys can purchase their books too on the website or directly on Amazon. It's up to you. But yeah, visit GGV Publishing Company and also read the articles published on the Lake Street Review, which is the uh, the online journal that I own as well. So yeah, I own two companies technically. Awesome, awesome. Germinal is an absolute pleasure to speak to you. I, I would love to have you again in the future. Thank you very much, Adi. It was a pleasure to be on your platform. It's, it was very um, entertaining. And thank you for literally allowing me to express my views. I know um, not everyone agree with what I have to say, and that's good because I think Lyndon Johnson said, if two people agree, only one person is, is thinking. So <laughs> it's good that we have uh, disagreements. Sometimes it brings you know the civil discourse. So thank you for having me on your podcast. Yeah, more people should talk to people they disagree with. Absolutely. I agree with that. So anyway, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Thoughtfully Mindless. If our conversations resonate with you, consider leaving a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your streaming platform of choice. Your ratings help us grow and reach more listeners. Don't hesitate to spread the word about our podcast. It's one of the best ways you can support us. I'm always eager to hear from you. So find me on Twitter at TMConvos or follow us on Instagram at Thoughtfully Mindless for a peek behind the scenes and more thoughtful content. And if you're looking for additional ways to support the show, visit FractalZoo.net where you can find exclusive t-shirts and apparel. Each purchase contributes directly to the podcast and allows us to keep bringing you content that matters. Thank you once again for lending us your ears. Until next time, stay thoughtfully mindless.